0: Hi, it's um, uh, Tuesday towards evening, 7.15. Uh, should in an hour, a little more than an hour. And I want to do the Parsha um, in time for the sponsor. Truth is, I'm a little wiped out. I just got back from uh, leading a uh, trip to the Holocaust Museum for the high school students, uh, which I do uh, sometimes. And uh, But here we go. This is being sponsored by... Uh, Shimmy Garden, Shimmy Dvorah Garden. Tonight is the yard set of Shimmy's mom, Chayefridal Bas Shimmy Pinchas. See, Yishim is um, Pinchas Svi. It is this is Chayefridal Bas Bas Pinchas. And last week, was it last Shabbos? Two Shabbos ago, we yeah, had the pleasure that we were at Shimmy and Dvorah's fiftieth. Uh, That's a biggie, fiftieth. And um, also. <coughs> uh, shimmy's they're putting out a safer now of the lambdus of Shimi Garden's father, uh, Rabbi Moshe Garden, from Longo. It was an Altamir, and it was a big Talmud Chacham. I never met him, but I know he was in, uh, he was he a Kansas City, and he was in, in Detroit, Detroit. And, uh, I mean, a real Talmud Chacham. And uh, I think it has uh, uh, an introductory essay from Rabbi Olshan, you know. It's the whole business of so this is a... Uh, um, a, a, a very appropriate. Let's put it this way: you can't make it more appropriate, um, Haskara uh, for somebody than to publish his kedusha and so forth. Shimon, you told me you said For my mother, you can do a podcast. For my father, he need he need a uh, uh, alum this year. Uh, anyway, the uh, so we're taking a look at Parshish Shlach, of course, which is a story of as everybody knows. And what I do lately is. As I go through the Schneimik or something like that, if I look through the Parsha, uh, my eyes <clears throat> come to focus on something that you know doesn't seem to make sense or something like that, because that's the way you are supposed to go and write a creative essay. That's what they teach in college. You look for something that doesn't make sense, and then you uh, are my eyeing in it. <clears throat> now, uh, I'll tell you what is uh, strange. And these things pass us by, and I'll be flipping back and forth on my chumash here with me. Uh, and you will... Hopefully, follow along. And the point is that the miragum, of course, as we all know, goes and they say Israel too strong, they're giants, we're doomed, and so on and so forth, right? Uh, As you know, and and may I say that there's something very uh, important over here uh, that's different and and happens for the first time, as far as I can recall, that the complaints of the people move from stamburching. Which drove Moshe crazy last week and said, to, He said to God, kill me, I can't take it anymore. But this week, but then they were just complaining. But this week they said, Fire the rabbi and get a new guy. I don't believe, as far as I can recall, that that happened before. <laughs> right? That they actually said, let's get, of, let's get rid of Moshe and go back to Israel. No, that's serious talk. As long as you're not firing Moshe, so you're just borching. You know, I don't like this. I don't like that. Most just stealing money from the Mishkaner. The food doesn't taste good, and so on and so forth. That we're used to anybody who's any kind of position of Jewish authority, a rabbi, a shul president. You get that all the time. But when the guy says, Nitna Roche Rosh, when I show Mitzrayimah, that was already serious. Okay? That was already serious. And as I'll try to show you, it's even more than that. Because apparently, the Muragolim episode wasn't simply they said, we're too afraid to go to Israel. And that ticked off God so much, it said, I'll kill you all. Which he of course did. It's a little more than that, right? <clears throat> no, was the exact Nakuda is there. Although you can give a Zionist speech and say the fact that they rejected Eretz Yisrael is such a grave sin, blah blah blah. I mean, you can't say such a thing. But I think it's more than that. And I'll tell you the, what 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 struck me. Uh, as we know, the spies say Eretz Yisrael is impossible. Yoshua Ben Nun, called Ben and says we can do it. Right? Tovar's art mode, mode imchavit, bon Hashem, Eretz you know, we can do it. And uh, and what do they say? It's very interesting. Uh, don't rebel against Hashem. What do those words mean? Think about it. Uh, don't rebel against God. And don't be afraid of the Goyim. They are our bread. That's like a funny expression. Sard Silame their shadow has departed from them. Hashemitano Alti don't be afraid. Now I, I get the like you, I get the general idea. But when you focus on it, and we're talking about the Khumish over here for crying out loud. So we're talking about the Khumish. So in other words, the words have to be more than just rhetorical, I think. And what do you mean when they say there are Lechem? I mean that's an unusual phrase. Uh, they are our lechem. And what do you mean their shadow has departed from them? I mean, if it was me, I would say, we're strong enough, we can do it. Moshe Ben is an experienced general. Hashem has demonstrated to us already that we've been able to bust the Egyptians and drown Pharaoh and the army in the Red Sea and all this kind of stuff. Rochavazona later on tells the spies, as everybody knows, I think it's in the Haftorah, that you know we heard about splitting the Red Sea and our hearts melted and so on and so forth. So in other words, <clears throat> you know that's what they should have said. What do you mean, Sart, Sila, It's so flowery, so poetic, you don't know exactly what it means. Rashi, of course, gives a very midrashic shot that I've heard since I'm a baby, like you. Eov died. Their shadow knows they had a tzaddik. Is that the language that Joshua and Caleb are speaking to the Jewish people in so poetic a form? I mean, the people are very grub, and they're saying, and instead, you know, what you're saying is, Oh, their shadow has... A, their tzaddik is gone. I mean, these guys are ready to dump Moshe, and you're talking to me flowery language that they are all dependent on the chutz of and I mean, that's a language if you're talking to the Chavetz Chaim, maybe, to the Chazonish. You're not talking to that kind of people over there. So it's, it's just strange. <laughs> uh ki <laughs> Don't be afraid of the because they are our bread. Sartzi <laughs> him. Their is <shadows> departed. <laughs> right? Now, um, as I say, you can give a Midrash a shot and say, their tzaddikim, their one tzaddik, is gone. Uh, but it sounds, you know, more than that. Uh, the Ramban, you know, doesn't like it. And he says that, um, you know, uh, uh, he says two interesting shots. First of all, one's from the Zohar. If you look at the Zohar, you see it. Their shadow is departed. This reminds us of what you've heard and I've heard, which is they sing a Shana Rabbah, that, you know, if you want to see if you'll live out the year, see if you have a shadow. And if you don't see a shadow, it means you're going to die during the year. Which is why they say, don't look. And um, that is a mystical vort, which has to do with the idea that if you can see your shadow, it's a, another way of saying you'll, you'll survive. And if they say their shadow has departed, so it means they're not going to survive an encounter with us. Again, that's a very Kabbalistic type shot, you know. I mean, again, the people are worried. They're scared to death. And he's giving them a Zohar. You know, Sword Tzilem Alihem. Another shot which is a little closer, which, you know, I hear a little better. The Ramban says the guardian angel. Saur Tzilem Elyam. This is the idea you find in the Tanakh, in the book of Job. I'm sorry, in the book of Daniel. Daniel. Um, where, <clears throat> if you will recall, the last part of Daniel... Uh, he has this vision uh, where the Tsar who was it again? Michael was it? Michal? Or Gavriel? The Jewish angel, the Jewish Tsar. That is to say every nation has a Tsar in heaven, so do the Jews. There are some sources say the Jews don't have any hashem but you know, here we go with the one that the Jews have theirs. And there's the Tsar of Yovon, the Tsar of Paras, the Tsar of Bovel. And if you know how to do your Tsar arithmetic up in Shemayim, if you could see into there, as Daniel is informed, then you'll see that um, if there's a, a wrestling match between, for example, the Tsar of Bavel and the Tsar of Paras, that means that, in the metaphysical sense, the two kochos, hypostatic existence, E-X-I-T-E-N-T-S, that these two nations represent, that they're not only physical nations, but they also represent some kind of hypostatic Matthias, hypostatic Matthias. So um, they're fighting and that will eventually manifest itself in some kind of a physical war between the two countries, one called Bava and one called Paras. That's how that works. <clears throat> you and I have heard this all the time when uh, Jacob wrestles with the angel. Jacob wrestles with the angel. The angel is supposed to be Sar Shaleso. So in other words, in the wrestling match downstairs, which takes place between Jacob and the one and the angel and the other, if it takes place at that level, I, as you know, the Rambam says it took place in a dream. But it actually doesn't matter for my purposes, because either way, the real struggle is taking place on the sar level in Shemayim, and uh, therefore, Sar Si Lamelechem would be Joshua and Kaliyver saying, "We can tell." That their heavenly protector, their Tsar of Canaan, let's say, or of the Amori, the Khiti, Prizi, and all this is removed, is gone. Therefore, since we saw uh, mystically, metaphysically, that their guardian angel or something like that is departed, so that's going to manifest itself now in their complete collapse on the battlefield. You know, that's their way. To... Now again, I repeat, that's a very mystical shot. Okay, well. Gee, I'm shocked. Ramban, I mean, he's the mystic, you know. He's going to t- give you a uh, a mystical shot. At least he's trying to account for what is this strange, you know, business that the uh, shadow has departed. You know, the shadow has departed. Uh, it's strange, and it's juxtaposed with when There are bread, so it's uh, you know, it's it, it's not easy to understand. Let's put it that way. Now, uh what's interesting how should i put this there you know sean coliver saying that we know that whatever their advantage was is gone their their shadow has departed uh, this account that we have in shlach and i've made this point in the past is by no means uh sufficient to understand the story it's all weird on the other hand if you coordinate it with what's said in Dvarim, where this is repeated in the beginning of the book of Dvarim, Moshe Rabbeinu, as you know, recounts the story in brief of the episode of the Miraglim, right? Isn't that right? So he says over there uh, something a little bit more. So I'll tell you what I mean. Um, in our Parsha this week, how's it go? The spies say that we were like grasshoppers and we and we can't do it. And the next pasuk says in our in our parsha this week. Everybody starts screaming and wailing and going crazy, right? Would have been better to die here and now than to be died by torture at the hands of the enemy. Why should we go and fall by the sword? Right? We better go in Egypt. Uh and all the motion Aaron could do was fall on their face. They had no reply. People motion if they call Uh maybe because when a people are because we do have a wonderful example. I think I've said this in the past. A wonderful example in this biblical account of the power of mass psychology, of mob psychology. Because that's what you got. Uh large numbers of people have a whole different than individual units of people, individual people. When you get large crowds, you really got to know what you're doing because it's easy to spook them and they do mishigas that they wouldn't do on their own individually. That's a In 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 psychologists will tell you, historians will tell you. As soon as you deal with a large group, it's got a life of its own. You see? And it's always very wishy-washy Which is why, if you're a historian of wars, and that's something that I'm always interested in, down the centuries, I think I've read all the classics, it just happens to be something that interests me. So, uh, you know, from uh, ancient times to uh, modern times, there are classics of war uh, literature out there. You see the extreme sensitivity of the great captains, the great generals in the past, to the psychology of their men, Because in a second, a whole army could fall apart. And on the other hand, properly led and under the right circumstances, the same army, even though outnumbered 10 to 1, 100 to 1, will fight like like, like amazing. You understand? Amazing. And there are so many examples of this in history where a party was stark at one moment and fell apart at another moment. As a matter of fact, one of the arts, one of the, the, the shtick of generalship, when possible, is of course, to prevent it from happening to your men, but to make it happen to the other side, because that's how you win a battle. When when the other side uh, 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 cracks, and then everybody panics and runs away, you won. You won. And so many of the great generals, and I'm thinking of many examples, their whole strategy was to hit real hard at one point with the idea that that should freak out all the other side, and all the other side should run, uh, drop their weapons and run away. And the, and the great generals were able to do it over and over again, the great generals, even though outnumbered, very often, were able to impose <clears throat> victory over their enemies by by, by uh, psyching them out through particular strategies that, <clears throat> on the battlefield. You know, this is just a random thought. Since it's June, so it's the anniversary, to, uh, roughly the anniversary of the Six-Day War. Actually, today's what, June 13th? So, you know, it's talking to Six-Day War time, you know, back in 67. And I happen to remember, because I have all these useless facts, that uh, when Israel was uh, those of my age will remember that um, just before the Six Day War Israel was surrounded by all the Arab countries and they were all gonna, saying we're going to drive you into the sea we're going to shecht you all we're going to kill everybody and torture them and the Israelis were freaked and I understand why and you will possibly recall if you remember the story that Israel dug a whole bunch of cemetery, uh, you know, grave uh, you know what I mean, uh, grave plots uh, graves to be ready to be macabre all the the, the, the wounded, and, I mean the dead, that they expect to have in the battlefield. Now, Baruch Hashem didn't happen that way. You know and I know it didn't happen. That way. I'm talking about the way that they were afraid. Now, in the end, Israel had a tremendous victory. But I, I'm talking about before that. And, uh, and there was a tremendous sudden collapse of morale a few days before in Israel on the part of the public because the Prime Minister Eshkol gave a hesitating speech. This is famous. You can look it up. Um, and the whole tone of his voice and the way he spoke was very non-confident, and that scared the heck out of everybody, including the soldiers in the army, except the top generals who knew that the Israeli army was actually very well prepared. And there was a panic that hit Israel at that time. This is the days before the Yom Kippur, uh, the days before the Six-Day War, and what the Prime Minister, Eshkol, had to do was appoint Moshe Dayan, who he hated, to be Sarabitachon, the defense minister, commander in chief of the Israeli armies. Because Moshe Dayan, at that time, had the reputation, everybody had confidence in him, uh, you know, with his eye patch. And as soon as he took over, the mood changed. You understand? It went from one extreme to the other. I remember, he said, the mood changed. I still remember when I was a kid, he had a press conference and they said, what happens if Israel loses, do you want American soldiers to help you? He so said, we don't need American soldiers. We don't, British soldiers, we'll do it ourselves. Thank you very much. This is not Vietnam. We're going to handle this ourselves. And I remember that the uh, the army was was, the, was actually uh, led by the professional head, by General Yitzhak Rabin, who later became the prime minister. And they had a plan, which they, of course, carried out. And Dayan said, let me see the plan. And he modified it very slightly. And the way he modified it was at one place they were going to have an Israeli division attack, an Egyptian division, or two. And Dayan said, no, let's make it two Israeli divisions attack. Why? Because if it will be a bigger force, be a bigger bank, then it'll uh, freak out the Egyptians and they will psychologically collapse. Psychologically collapse. And that's what happened. You see? So notice this is very important. And we see that in our Parsha this week because... The spies came back and gave a negative report and the whole people fell apart, even though they're very powerful, 600,000 people. They're very powerful, besides the Hashem part. You know, they weren't a small group, but they were. They were like a bunch of babies and they said, we can't do this, we're going to die, it's going to be terrible, and so on and so forth. So you see the mob, you know, psychology, and you see that uh, immediately everybody said, uh, let's get it, Let's move. go back to Egypt. Right? Lom Hashem, maybe the Son of the Lord says, Lin Paul Tovalon L'shub Mitzrayimah. Okay? In the Book of Dvarim, it says a little bit differently, with, and a very significant difference. Um, there, Moshe Raminu is um, omitting the bad report of the Ten Spies. It's very interesting to compare and contrast. This is like a Nechama type type word, you know, compare and contrast. And it simply says, um, uh, they went and spied land and they brought back grapes and everything like that. Tova Lanu and they gave a good report. So here Moshe is fudging the truth because ten out of twelve gave a bad report. I'm reading in Devarim in the in, in the, between Shlishi and Re in the Parshish Devarim. Velo you don't want to go. But Pi you went against Hashem, te and you borsch it in your tents. And you said, Hashem The fact that we're being sent to fight the Canaanites, this is a sign that God hates us. Hashem This Hashem hates us. That's why he's taking us to um to perish in a faraway land. Uh, that's already a blasphemy, you get it? Does he say Hashem hates you? That's why he's doing Hashem said, I did everything because I like you. And now you tell me you hate you. That may work with one Jew against another person. You, you hate me. You know, like if a child says to a mother, and all that spoiled brat. But you don't talk to Hashem that way. That's what it says in It doesn't say in our parasha those words, but it does say that they said, "Let's go back to Egypt," which is the most radical kind of uh, thing. So you see this uh, this phenomenon of the uh, of the collapse of the um, of the psychology of the people. And the collapse was irremediable. That's the interesting part. Hashem couldn't get them back to their confidence. Hashem, in normal confidence, He could only kill them and wait for the next generation. And the Rambam and the murder of Uchim is a whole thing that the next generation had to grow up hardened by desert marching and therefore it's like a boot camp. And By the time they come with the Osho ben they're already toughened. They've grown up 40 years in the desert. Um, the older generation was hopeless you see uh, which is just interesting because when the psychology collapses sometimes you can't build it up again now in the case of Moshe Dayan it did build up again but a lot of times it does not build up again and there's so many uh, <laughs> examples of this in history this is where leadership comes in and Moshe Benu, uh for whatever reason did not display the leadership on this occasion to restore the morale of the people it's it, it, it's amazing, right? I mean, it's amazing. Instead, Hashem intervenes and says, I'm going to kill everybody. I mean, you know that. So why didn't Moshe go and, you know, by his uh, presence and the confidence he inspired in the people, you know, uh, turn the situation around? But it doesn't say he did that. That was not his strength. His strength lay in other areas, in the Ruchnius. Uh, not in this area. You know, uh, since I'm ranging over military history, I'm reminded of um, my favorite general in the Civil War, a general uh, who was the greatest of the generals in the Civil War, uh, George Henry Thomas, who was the commander of the Army of Cumberland in the middle of America um, in the uh, Civil War. And um, in the Battle of Chickamauga, which was a very big battle. I mean, I know it probably doesn't mean much to you, But you go look it up. It was a very big and bloody battle with two large armies. And at one point, he was in the Union side. At one point, the Confederates busted in and tore apart the Union lines. And we're going to take a surround and destroy everybody. And all the Union troops in one sector dropped their weapons and ran away. The general in charge, General Rosecrans and the other guys, all ran away. They fled the battlefield. Uh... And it was going to be a complete destruction of the Union Army. And this guy, General Thomas, he got together the survivors. It's famous. And stragglers and all this kind of stuff. And they stood on the hill and they fought off the other side, even though they were there and numbered all day long. That's why he's called the Rock of Chickamauga. And he did it by a personal presence. There in another, you, you, if you're interested in what I'm saying, you can look it up yourself, General Thomas. And um, just by example, you understand? In other words, he stood there and, the, and got the men to stand there. And, you know, we can do it, as it were. Some people have that kayak. And later on, uh, again, skipping over the details, a few months later, when his men charged up the missionary ridge near Chattanooga, the, um, what do you call it? The Confederates had the high ground, so they should have been able to mow them down. And General Thomas's soldier was on such a stark thing, they ran all the way up to the top of the mountain, and the, and the Confederates ran away. So you see... It's all psychological. That's what I'm trying to say. Uh, the psychology is supremely important. For whatever reason, no one in this project restores the psychology of the Jewish people. Once the Temeroglum said that we, that we can't do it, that we're going to be busted, you couldn't fix it. I mean, it's 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 quite a story. You cannot fix it. Um, again, just from uh, memory as you survey history, look at the French army. In World War I, they had stark uh, um, uh, spirit, and they held back the Germans for four years, even though they lost millions. In the Second World War, they collapsed in a, in a few days, you know, because in the First World War they had the the ruach, and the Second World War, for whatever reason, you know, again, I'm not going through the whole rigas, they had no ruach, and they they felt like a house of cards, you know. same felt the Maginot Line. They felt like a house of cards. So it's really uh, quite remarkable how the effects of morale can be like you know like a a, a barometer, I guess, or something. And it swings in one extreme and the other, but it is interesting that Moshe Rabbeinu did not do a General Thomas, so to speak, over here. He fell on his face, is what it says Notice he was he was like helpless to answer. he was so overwrought you know with with, with with what happened I mean what is that you understand what is that and so um, you couldn't beat him now. That's Sard Silomay Alihem. What does it he mean? hem They are our bread. Because Yeshua and Colby said, "What are you worried about? They, they are our bread." So in English, you'd say like this: "We can eat them for breakfast." Uh, in Biblical Hebrew, are they talking with the American? Eat We can eat them for breakfast. Uh, so I, I so I don't know. So I looked in um, my rusty, trusty uh, Menachem Kasher um, for all the midrashic explanations Uh, because I looked at the regular portion, and nothing uh, attracted me, and in uh, the Yalka, Pistar, and Torah, someone in the Midrashim, he calls attention to something very, very interesting, and that is in uh, Ekev. Again, you have to go and, and compare what we have in this week's Parsha to what you have in Parsha Shlach to see the bigger picture, okay? See the bigger picture, and what do you find over here? in Ekev, there's a mitzvah in the beginning uh, that, you know, you'll take over it's Israel, and so on and so forth. Again, a funny expression. Me, you shall eat all the people, right? Or in art scroll, translation, translates, you shall devour all the peoples, uh, in other words, the seven nations of Canaan, and have no pity on them. What a strange lashon! Why does it say, you know, the kavashta or lachkhta or something like? That? What do you mean by is coming? You're not going to cannibal them. So what does it mean, right? What does it mean? And it says over here that that and say There are food. Now in the beginning, I was thinking like this, you know, the word milchama comes from lechem, correct? Doesn't it? Because in ancient times, people fought for bread, you know, take for survival, as we'd say today. You know, like a semi-caveman type situation. But milkhama and lechem always come from the word. Isn't that interesting? Lechem, lochem, is the battle. milkhama And here he says, lachmenu heim. So you may come up with a better shot than I do. I mean it, but it's just striking that they would use this language. Don't worry about the Canaanites, lachmenu heim. They are a bread. Um, but comparing it to this Pussigan in makes me think the following. <clears throat> I'll just share it again. This is just my opinion. That's all. Whatever it is. Uh, the war that they were expected to fight against the, 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 the Canaanites is an unusual type of war. I could think, generally speaking, offhand, of like three types of war, A, B, and C. One is where you tried to defeat an enemy army. The other one, but, you know, you don't do anything to the enemy other than that. The other one is where you try to, uh, I guess, conquer an enemy nation and put them under your control, which is usually what kibush I guess would mean. But that's not what was supposed to be happened with design the Amman. There they were supposed to get rid of them, to replace them physically. Either kill them, which is a bloody business, or chase them out. Okay, Or chase them out. Um, this says over and over again in the Old Testament. Go get them. Uh, leave no one behind. Make sure nobody's left there in Israel. So what do you call that? That's a war. Uh, is it extermination? It's not exactly extermination because you don't have to kill anybody. As the, as we know, one of the Zionists was the Girgashi, but you don't hear about them later on because it's famous in Jewish tradition. They say we don't need this stuff. We're moving away to Africa, and they did do so. And nothing ever happened to them. So in other words, you're sitting on a piece of land that belongs to me, or I claim belongs to me. If you stay there, we're going to fight it out. If, but if you leave, there won't be any fights. And they took advantage of that cart. Uh, So that's, in my understanding, that's a war of achilah, where you want to devour, eat the other side, meaning you want to take over what they have. Ba'tim tov mel'sher lo uh, you know, Boris Mashilo tata, whatever the expression is over there, because that's what the Klai Yisrael did. It is a strange story. By modern liberal methods, God should have sent them to Gilgan's Island, which would be empty, and they should have just started planting from from scratch and built up a whole thing on their own. Um, the War of Achilah is something along the lines of what happened, the way America was settled by the white man, which they displaced and replace the indians and so uh that's called achilo. when you do that and the other side knows you're going to do that they're going to they're going to fight double hard triple hard right i mean they're really going to fight by the way there is another one there's a fourth war which is not a war to defeat the army it's not a war to conquer and control another person's uh, population and it's not and it's not what we're talking about here it's a war of extermination plain and simple that's that's malik. But a is not identical with the zayinam of Canaan. I don't know if you ever considered that. It doesn't say you have to hunt down timche Zech a It says timche Canaan, timche Amori. We don't find that. Instead, they're sitting on a place that we want, and Hashem says, "Go do it." And as if we get rid of them, if they stay and fight, then it's going to end up with them being killed out. But if they don't, if they leave, then, they, then, 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 then you know, then it won't. So that's, I guess, called the war of achilah. I suppose, and that is what the Kaladi throne is being told to do. So they weren't being asked to do a regular war. They were asked to do a very tough war. We're going to have to fight house after house, farm after farm, place after place, cave after cave, so to speak. That's a toughie, and you can understand that people were scared of that, right? And maybe when they heard their giants all the rest of it, they were thinking simply in terms of <clears throat> you know, long-term tenacious defense. We think all the time this is my insight. We think all the time of the fears of the Yisrael, um Yisrael in going into Canaan along the lines that they're going to go into battle and be wiped out by the enemy. Right? The other side of giants, where Chagavim and so forth, you know, uh, maybe ours is this Lynn Paul Bacharev, Nal Shein of Yulavaz, like that. Lav it could be that um, the fear that faced them was the long and tenacious and bloody and, and costly struggle that faced them to completely dispossess the Canaanite nations. And again, a recent example will be from 1945. If you know what happened in 45, there's like a deus ex machina called the A-bomb. The Americans were fighting the Japanese. The Japs bombed us in Pearl Harbor. But America, little by little, built itself back up and created an unbelievably large navy and stuff like that, and army. It's quite a story. I mean, the the naval war in the Pacific is quite a story, even with the mistakes that the U.S. made. It's amazing what they did, and all that island-hopping business, and they came right up close to Japan and Okinawa. However, the closer they got to Japan the bloodier was the fighting, and the larger was the uh, numbers of casualties. And the American uh, people aren't big into casualties. That's that's not the kind of country we are. So, you know, when they came already at the end to Okinawa and Iwo Jima, maybe some of you know what I'm talking about. Um, When it comes like that... Here, let me just see. What was the casualties, Okinawa? Casualties. Because it's quite remarkable. That's an island off Japan... And America lost 50,000. Now, in in uh, European terms, it's a joke, but in American terms, it's a lot. Uh, 12,500 killed and 36,000 wounded. In this country, uh, 12,000 killed was like a veldt. And the government was freaking out because they didn't know the American government. And so what I'm trying to say is like this. Then the, the next question is, where do you go after Okinawa? So, well, you have to invade Japan. The Japanese were preparing to fight to the last man and they did so with a cheshman, That if we face the Americans with the, pos- with the prospect, you have to fight town after town, inch after inch, and lose a belt of people, then the Americans are going to say like this, it's not Kadai to lose a million men to conquer the Japanese. It's not a price we want to pay. You know what I'm saying? It's not a price we want to pay. So you say, I the Japanese will lose 5, 10 million. The way they were thinking, I'm talking about the big shots in Japan, eh, 5 or 10 million, big deal. You know? But at the end we'll win, the Hainu, that they'll let us keep our own country. They won't, they won't uh, hold on to Japan. Now, in the end, as you and I know, America pulled a fast one. Nobody knew. They invented secretly an A-bomb. They dropped the A-bomb. And at the same time, Stalin invaded um, Japan. Many people don't know that. Russian soldiers started land in Japan. The prospect of a Russian invasion super freaked out the Japs, and they immediately surrendered. And the Americans treat him actually very well, General MacArthur. But they treat him very well. But the point is like this the American public, the generals in America, President Truman, they were going crazy. How are we going to able to take over this country? Now they could have. They knew it's possible, but they don't want to lose a million Americans. That's not how this country operates. We don't have that kind of culture that people will stand for the loss of a million men, killed, wounded, who knows what. And the kamikaze is other junk. And so the the uh long protracted bloody struggle really was very um what's the right word? Not just terrifying, but it, it kills your morale. And that's what the people were saying. Achalt is called me really? Achalt is called me, says is a mitzvah well that means you have to go after each and every Canaanite stronghold, each and after Canaanite farm, each and after this, there's gonna be tremendous losses and casualties and it'll go on and on and on. And we don't want that. We're not signing up for that kind of long-term, bitter struggle, any more than the Americans would, despite all their vast uh, armaments and superiority in men and all the every other category. They don't want to sign up for such a long and bloody struggle against Japan in 1945. You can look it up; if you, it'd be interesting, you know, if you read up on it. Uh, that's what the Jews were afraid of, and you know, Moshe had no answer to that because Hashem never said, "I'm just going to make them all fold away." Sounded like they're going to have to fight all the time. Joshua and Caleb were saying like this: "Lach we can do the achilah, because we've been there and we saw firsthand who was what's up." And they will put up a fight, but we see that um, their shadow has departed. I take that to mean their their morale has collapsed. Many mafarshim learned it that way, by the way, that their morale has collapsed. I think the a forno and so forth, um, and if their morale has collapsed, then the struggle won't be so protracted because the Japanese were indoctrinated to fight to the last man, and everybody's a mitzvah to die for the emperor. But the Kanani, Mori, Priesi, and Vusi aren't like that. And once we come and hit them, they themselves will flee. That seems to me what Yeshua is saying: Sartzilamayalihem. <speaking in Spanish> their own confidence has left them. Therefore, Lachmenuhem. We can eat them because. That is we can eat a to well, because they won't fight that long. They'll, they will run away the majority of them. Now you and I know none of this worked. And in the end, you know, the Dorhamid, the, HaMidbor, the, you know, they were the older generation was condemned to die. And by the time the Jews came in time of Yoshua, the enemy did not flee. They they fought uh, very stubbornly. Sometimes were wiped out, sometimes not. And because they fought very stubbornly, the Klay Israel was never able, because they didn't have a leader like Moshe Menu to finish the job, and there were plenty of Canaanite strongholds uh, throughout Eretz Israel for many, many centuries during the Biblical period. I'm going now by the Rabbinic tradition, which says in the Gemara and the Yerushalmi and Chal, I think, that the last Canaanite strongholds were not overcome by the Jews until the time of King Yerubim II, which means in the time of the prophet Jonah. That's very late in Jewish history. It's hundreds, and hundreds and hundreds of years. And by that time, the religious influence of the Canaanites had infiltrated into rest of Kal and turned them all into Avodah Zara, some one form or another, either direct Avodah Zara or syncretism, as I've described many times. And so the Canaanites took us down with them, so to speak, in a weird uh, parallel to Samson taking down, you know, the, the Philistines with the building. So the results were very, very unusual. Um, so look what lies behind all these strange expressions and look what lies behind the original plans and the way things worked out. Um, I think that's what it means by the lachmenum. And it's definitely that the chautas the is, kamim is, is what the Jews were facing. So when you sit there smuggling, you read the parsha, and say, oh, look what little faith they had. I suggest what you should do, put yourself in their situation and say, am I committing myself uh, to participate in such a long, unending, protracted, kind of bitter uh, struggle. Anyway, that's what it seems to me. I know I've gone over time. And so, uh, once again, I want to thank Shimmy and Devorah Garden, especially Shimmy's uh, Mother's Yard Site, and his father's new safer coming out, Mayan Moshe. And with that, I, I wish everyone, let me see, did I forget anybody? I wish everyone a good week.